Morning, everybody. So uh, my name is Pat Stark, and I'm your guest preacher. Um, having a guest preacher is a little like going on a blind date. Uh, you, you never know who's going to show up, but you know you have to endure for about uh, two or three hours. <laughs> I, I'm not, I'm not going to be preaching that long, just so you know. Um, so uh, I, uh, I serve as associate superintendent um, for the Pacific Southwest Conference of the Evangelical Covenant Church. And no, that does not fit on one business card. It's like two and a half business cards. Um, I, uh, I, I get to be a pastor to pastors. So I'm your pastor's pastor. You maybe wonder, who pastors David Hillis? Well, I get to. I get to hang out with him, other people like him. Uh, I get to serve the local church in our region. And uh, if you're new to Grace this morning, uh, you're part of a tribe, a denomination, a family of churches called the Evangelical Covenant Church. We break it down into conferences or regions, and your conference is California, Arizona, Nevada, Nevada, Utah, Hawaii. I don't get to go to Hawaii. My boss gets to go to Hawaii. Um, I live actually just up the road in a little town called Phoenix. I don't know if you've heard of it. Uh, so I, I live in Arizona, so I get to oversee the churches in Arizona uh, and uh, Southern California. I also get to uh, oversee uh, church planting. And uh, I love your pastor, uh, David Hillis, and I go back at least about 20 years. Um, I met him in seminary. Uh, at the time, he was with a different family of churches. I made him drink the Covenant Kool-Aid, and now he's your pastor. And so you probably owe me a finder's fee or something like that. Um, but uh, that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's a little bit about uh, me. Uh, I, uh, I live, like I said, in Phoenix. This is my family. Uh, married to Karen for 31 years. Uh, Josh, Sarah, Ben, New York City, Durham, North Carolina, Flagstaff. We are empty nesters. Yes. We, we made it to the finish line. Uh, man, I am, I, am, uh, I am super stoked to be with you. And I love that you're doing a series called Taboo. I love that you're taking on topics that, you know, our world, uh, you know, has a tough time talking about. And the church typically avoids so, you know, kudos to you and your, uh, your team and your leaders for, for taking on, you know, some difficult subject. If, if the church isn't the place where we can talk about taboo topics, then where do we get to talk about them? I think, I think the church has to be that place. Uh, have any of you ever made a decision without considering all the information? Anybody? So... Um, when I began this new role, uh, I was in the local church for about 27 years, and um, I began this new role, it, it involved travel, about 40% travel, and so being empty nesters, my wife's home alone, she's like, Pat, we need a dog. I'm like, I have successfully avoided owning a dog my whole life, I don't really like dogs, they bite me, I don't get along with them, but she says, oh, but I found a doodle. I'm like, what's a doodle? That's a dog? I found a golden doodle. Well, tell me about this, this doodle. She says, well, it's hyperallergenic, so you're not going to sneeze. It doesn't shed, it hardly ever, ever barks. And get this, it's a third the usual price. Like, you're really selling this. So I said, all right. All right. In a moment of weakness, I said, all right, we'll buy the dog. Thinking I had all the information, right? All the information. I come home from a road trip. I meet Daisy the doodle. I call her Daisy the Destroyer. I meet her. I take her out to do her business. The first morning I meet her, we go outside. I see the pool gates open, so I go over to close the pool gate. She goes running right by me, into the pool. This is October, people. The pool is cold, and I go over, and I look in, and there's Daisy sinking to the bottom of the pool. 
Now, I was in a dilemma. Like, I could end this. No, I, did. I wasn't thinking that. I was not. I wasn't doing that. I jump in the pool, the freezing cold pool, to save this doodle with my iPhone. Suddenly, the third less cost is now changed, right? Uh, next week, my son and I, we build a little metal pen in our house so Daisy doesn't do her business anywhere but on that specific part of the tile. And that night, knock, knock on our door, like at midnight, my wife and I are fast asleep, and our son Ben says, Dad, I cut myself. I'm like, first thing, what are you doing shaving at midnight? He says, no, I forgot about the pen. I tripped, and I sliced my eye open. Stitches, emergency room, $500, cha-ching. Suddenly, Daisy's value is going up again. You kind of getting where I'm going here? And then there's so many things I can tell. The last one is our oldest son was dog sitting and texted us when we were away on a road trip and said, I can no longer afford to watch your dog. And he texted me a photo of his brand new fancy watch and the leather straps eaten off of that by the Daisy. By Daisy the dog. I didn't have all the information necessary to make the decision. And I think... Sometimes that how, that's how it is when we make theological decisions about what we're going to believe about certain things. That we have some of the information, maybe somebody told us some things, we heard something once upon a time, and I think this topic that we're going to talk about today, women in leadership, is especially, this is especially true. So what if we just, for the next 30 minutes, we kind of wipe the slate clean, everything that we've heard of, we just kind of put it out of our mind, let's just absorb everything together in this one moment and see what God does. I think when it comes to women in leadership, that is, women serving in the same capacities as men in the church, sometimes we have made decisions based on information that we have without really looking at all of the facts. And I think this can be a taboo subject for some. I think some people probably have made up their minds and already know what they believe. Some people are like, I don't even, I've never talked about this. I don't even know this was a subject to talk about. Um, And just so you know, if you're new to grace or the covenant, we are a people that major on the majors and minor on the minors. And so if you completely disagree with everything you hear, that is totally fine. If you have problems with what I'm telling you, then you can email me at davidhillis at grace.com and I'll be happy to... Talk to you about that. I think it's important that when we, um, when we think about topics like this, taboo topics, but anything that is concerning life, I think we have to remember that we are the church, and the church is not a building, it's people, it's you and I, and so we behave differently, we think differently, we make decisions differently. We don't rely on the dominant culture to tell us what to think, uh, we don't um, consider other, piece of, uh, other people's opinions without really dissecting them. We are actually called, we call ourselves people of the book. We, we as covenanters, we call ourselves people, this is where we go to. This is the only perfect rule for faith, conduct, and doctrine. This is where we go. In fact, at our beginning point, our forefathers and foremothers used to have a catchphrase, and that catchphrase is, where is it written? So they'd be talking about some subject, and they'd say, okay, okay, good opinions, Where is it written? Let's go to the Word and see what it has to say. So, I think everyone can know what the Bible says about women in leadership, first of all, by considering context. This is where we have to begin. Uh, Any uh, real estate people in the room today? Real estate people? If you are, you have kind of a three-word mantra you use, right? What is that? 
Location, 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 right? Well, I think it's the same thing with understanding the Bible. I think it's context, context, context. We have to look at the context in which a passage or a book of the Bible was written to really understand it. So uh, a little bit about the culture where uh, most of the New Testament was written. You may or may not know this. Jewish culture in the first century was decidedly patriarchal. The daily prayers of Jewish men included this little ditty, Praise be to God that he has not created me a woman. Daily prayer. This is what they prayed. A woman's place was thought to be in the home. Women were responsible for bearing the children, rearing them, maintaining a hospital home. Men were not to greet women in public. Some Jewish writers of Jesus' time taught that women should never leave the home except to go to synagogue. Generally marrying young, a woman was always under the protection and authority of a man, her father, her husband, or a male relative if her husband passed away. Uh, And this left women in a very vulnerable position in the Jewish faith. They had little access to property. Um, Any money a woman earned belonged to her husband. Uh, Men could legally divorce a woman for almost any reason. Women were not allowed to study the sacred texts. They were not allowed to. Rabbi Eliezer, a first century teacher, is noted for saying, rather should the word of the Torah, the word of God, be burned than entrusted to a woman. You kind of getting a feel for what this was like? This is the context in which these epistles were written, these words that we're going to talk about today. And of course, Jesus blew up the cultural norms, right? In a variety of subjects, but especially when it comes to women and women in leadership. Jesus brought a countercultural status to women. For starters, Jesus had women disciples. They accompanied him from Galilee to Jerusalem. Women disciples helped him to finance his ministry. Jesus taught Mary. You're not supposed to do that, right? Jesus taught Mary and defended her choice to learn. Women were the last at the cross and the first at the tomb. After his resurrection, Jesus appeared first to women and gave them the task of telling the good news to the male disciples. Women were the first evangelists. So context is important when we read scripture. Because I don't know about you, but we have a tendency when we pick up this book is we read it with 21st century Southwestern American eyes. And guess what? It wasn't written in our century and it wasn't written in our culture. So we have to take that into account. We are reading, and here's a little phrase for you, we are reading today what are called the pastoral epistles. And this is uh, uh, letters That's what an epistle is, a letter typically written by the Apostle Paul to the various churches around the Mediterranean. And when we say pastoral epistles, they're letters. In other words, we're reading other people's mail. Yes, they are the inspired words of God. Yes, they are the sacred texts. But these books, as we call them, are actually letters written to specific churches for a specific purpose at a specific time. So we have to take these things into account. Context is very important, but I also think we have to consider the totality of Scripture. The totality of Scripture. Uh, Our daughter, Sarah, uh, when she was in third grade, uh, we had her enrolled at a really nice Christian school in Phoenix. And in third grade, as uh, the teacher was, you know, going about her day, she decided to ask the students what, what they wanted to be when they grew up. And my daughter's a little extroverted, so she's like, oh, pick me, pick me, pick me. Okay, Sarah Stark, what would you like to be when you grow up? She says, well, I would like to be a pastor. And the teacher said, 
Well, Sarah, you know that little girls can't grow up to be pastors. Only men can. Now, my daughter's a little feisty. Takes after her mom. And she said, well, my mom and dad said I can be a pastor and I'm going to be a pastor. (laughs) Now, were my wife and I surprised by this? Not really. Uh, Throughout Christian history, especially recently, there have been certain segments of the church family uh, that are definitely not okay with women being in leadership, women teaching, and even and especially overseeing men, unless they're under the age of 12 or in a foreign country. That was a little poke there. I don't know if you saw that. We're fine with and have been fine with women being missionaries overseas and teaching men and leading men, but not here. So let's get into it. Let's consider what the scriptures say, and let's first start with the scriptures that typically come across as restrictive of women in leadership and ministry. So first, 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12, up on the screen, or you can look in your Bibles or your handheld devices. It says this, Women should learn quietly and submissively. I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Listen, let them listen quietly. And 1 Corinthians 14, 34, Women should be silent during the church meetings. It is not proper for them to speak. Well, that should wrap it up. Case closed. We're going to be done early today, so I'll meet you. No, no, not, not, not so fast. The Apostle Paul authors several passages that appear to tell us that women should remain silent and for sure that they shouldn't have authority over men. But this is where God uses a taboo subject, I think, to help us become more conscious of how we understand and apply Scripture. You see, our interpretation of Scripture must go beyond just a superficial reading that may violate the original intention of the passage. So I'm going to give you a kind of a, a word here. Our focus should be on the why. Our focus should be on the why was this written. Remember, other people's mail. Yes, sacred text. But this was written to a specific church for a specific purpose. So we have to ask the why question. Only if we understand why a passage was written will we be able to apply it. And that means we must read them in context and in light of the rest of Scripture. If we don't do this, we may inadvertently isolate Scripture from their context or worse, deal only with passages that support what we already believe and think. In such instances, I think we do justice to the letter of Scripture without ever discerning its spirit. Case in point, in the above passages, Paul also authors, in reference to the above passages, Paul also authors several passages that appear to approve of women speaking in the church and providing leadership in the church. What? Yes, it's true. So let's start with women being silent in the church. In the same letter, in the same letter, 1 Corinthians, Paul also writes this in 11.5. But a woman dishonors her head if she prays or prophesies without a covering on her head, for this is the same as shaving your head. So it's clear that women were praying and prophesying out loud in the early church. The only concern about their activity was for proper decorum in the way they dress. So you may have already guessed this, but if they're praying and prophesying, they're speaking out loud in church. We cannot easily argue that women were allowed to prophesy but we're not allowed to preach or teach. In fact, the New Testament does not make a distinction 
between prophesying and teaching. Prophecy is simply inspired speech that is the result of divine revelation. In the early church, the words of the prophet were to be regarded as the word of God. So, Grace, how can we understand the fact that within one epistle, one letter that the apostle Paul wrote... Paul both gave directions for proper dress when women were praying and prophesying and asked for their silence. Uh, Did Paul have a mental breakdown between 11 and 14? Uh, Did did someone sneak into Paul's office and, you know, erase a couple things and rewrite them? Uh, Is Paul punking us from the grave? I mean, what is happening here? Let's remember the context. Everyone knows that worship in the first century was a lot like we have it here today. You know, there's a couple of opening numbers, uh, there's an announcement, there's some more songs, there's a guitar solo, there's another song, there's some more announcements, preaching 33.5 minutes exactly, uh, offering benediction, and we're out. No. No, first century church, you wouldn't even recognize what worship looks like because it was so different. In the early church, when people gathered to worship God, Everyone was expected to contribute in some way to the worship service, whether it was a prayer or a song or a prophecy or a teaching. Everyone was expected to give something. So Paul's concern in 1 Corinthians 14 is the disruption of the service. Because you see, if you read... And I hope you do. I hope you go back and review this. You'll see that women aren't the only ones asked to remain silent. Anyone who was going to speak in another language was told to keep silent if no interpreter was present. 1 Corinthians 14, 28. If one prophet was speaking and revelation came to someone else, the first prophet was asked to be silent. 14, verse 30. Nor were women the only ones told to be in submission. The various prophets were to be submissive to each other as well, and the service was to be orderly. The issue with regard to women is clearly within the context of the disruption of the worship service. Remember where we're at here. Remember the, the avenue that women were moving from and to this new life that Jesus had given them. No longer were they second-class, third-class citizens. And some of the women who had no experience with teaching or scripture were asking their husbands what was going on in the service. Often uh, it's thought in the first century, much like the early Jewish church, men and women sat on opposite sides of whatever venue they were in. And so they literally, women were standing up and all, hey Fred, I don't understand, what is he saying? Can you tell, can you tell me what that... They were, they were disrupting the service. And Paul's simply saying, listen, listen, you can't do that anymore. Ask your husbands if you're confused about something when you go home. So the transcultural principle here is that that is the, the principle we can take from that culture and apply to our culture is this. Don't cause disruptions during the service. Simply that. Okay, but what about 1 Timothy? Don't forget about that. I haven't forgotten about it, people. Women should learn quietly and submissively. I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. So... What's the first question we ask? Why? Why, why is this written? And this, is, this question is particularly important in this passage because the Bible tells us there were women leading and at least some had authority over men in the early church. So put a pin in 1 Timothy for just a minute 
because it's critical that we engage the totality of the scripture. So I could go to a number of places because of time. I'm just going to go to Romans 16. Please put your thumb in there. You have to read Romans 16. Paul's letters, in his letters, we, we encounter a significant number of women who were engaged in the work of the gospel. Paul uses the same language for himself and his male colleagues as he uses to describe the women who assisted in ministry. Romans 16 mentions 10 different women engaged in various kinds of ministry. Phoebe was probably the person who delivered Paul's letter to the Roman church. She's described with the Greek word diakonos, which means, can anyone guess? Deacon. She was a servant, one who helped many, including Paul. Prissa, also known as Priscilla, is called a fellow worker of Paul. She and her husband Aquila had a church in their house, and the two of them instructed Apollos, who was a male, in Christian doctrine. Priscilla is often mentioned first. We have to, we have to acknowledge this. She is often mentioned first in that uh, marriage, uh, marital couple, which is highly unusual for a woman to get first billing, which probably means, and scholars agree, that she was probably the lead in that pastoral team, and her husband was the subordinate role. Mary, Trophena, Trophosa, and Persis were all women that Paul described as one who labored in the Lord, and finally Junia. Junia is called a highly respected apostle who came to faith before Paul did. An apostle, someone who begins new work, someone who starts new churches, someone who is a leader and has authority. So back to 1 Timothy 2. So there's no question that this passage is prohibiting women from teaching men. The question is why. Were there reasons in this circumstances why women were prohibited from teaching or were women never to teach men? If it's the latter, we're going to have some problems because there's blatant contradictions in this text and the other ones that I just read. And we must have a commitment to the unity of Scripture, and I would even say an assumption that Paul is not crazy. He is speaking about different situations as we analyze this. So there are specific indications uh, as to the reason why women were prohibited from teaching in 1 Timothy. Paul's letters, get this, were not written to be manuals for church government. They were largely written to combat false teaching and heresy. If you read the pastoral epistles, any letter that Paul wrote to any of the early churches, throughout, he is trying to combat people. There are all kinds of freaks and weirdos who are trying to infiltrate the early church and mess up our faith, and Paul wanted to guard against that. Approximately one-fifth of the 242 verses in Paul's letters explicitly treats false teaching. If false teaching is a concern of Paul's epistles, it is the concern of 1 Timothy. Immediately in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 3, the concern is to prevent false teaching and it's expressed for the reason that Paul left Timothy, his protege, in Ephesus. Timothy, you've got to stay put. I'm going to go on the road, plant some more churches, but we've got problems here and you've got to help guard against heresy here. Some of the best successes of the false teachers were among women. Now, why would that be? This is the first experience women had with being taught with seeing and reading scripture, with being, uh, you know, with other uh, men in a learning community. 
2 Timothy 3, 6 and 7 speaks of false teachers who crept into houses and took captive, starting in verse 6. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. You see, I, I think the, the, the whole of First and Second Timothy has to be understood in the context of false teaching. The focus of the chapter is prayer, but the concern overall is false teaching. It's important also, I think, that we have to look at this word authority. Women were not allowed to have authority over men. This word authority is the only time this particular word is ever used in the New Testament. There's a typical word for authority that is used throughout the New Testament. This is the only place this word is used, and it can be interpreted with different meanings, especially to dominate, to act independently, and even to commit murder. What, what Paul is writing to First Timothy, he's saying, don't let women who have been influenced by false teachers dominate the rest of the body. Don't let them act independently of the rest of the body. Don't let them murder the souls of the people that we are trying to reach for Christ. See, it's never a good idea to base a theological position on one particular verse, one particular word that is used only this one time. So I, I don't think there's any need to see any contradiction between 1 Corinthians 11.5 where women are praying and prophesying in 1 Timothy 2.12 where women are prohibited from teaching the prohibition in 1 Timothy was required for that time and that place. So we consider context, we count the totality of Scripture, and I think we have to take cues from the early church. I mean, the early church is what we base our community on. That's the prototype that we say we, we have a new community in Christ we want to emulate in some way in our current culture what that looked like. I think we have to look first at Acts 2, verses 17 through 21. This is when uh, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit came. This is called Pentecost. This is where the church became supercharged with Holy Spirit power. And in verse 17, Dr. Luke writes this. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Luke is quoting the prophet Joel in this context. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. In those days I will pour out my spirit even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. And I will cause wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and clouds of smoke. The sun will become dark and the moon will turn blood red before the great and glorious day of the Lord arrives. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And with this event... The promise had been fulfilled that the prophet Joel spoke as God spoke through him, that God would pour out his spirit so that both sons and daughters would prophesy. The church at Philippi, you may not know, was founded on women. One of them, Lydia, played an important role in the origin and growth of the church. The four prophesying daughters of Philip who are mentioned in Acts 21.9 are further examples of the ministry of the Holy Spirit pouring out on women. And I think this becomes even more clear in Paul's writings in Christ. Racial, societal, and gender barriers have been broken down so that all are made one. Galatians 3.28, this is Paul again. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is not male and female. For you are all are one in Christ Jesus. 
Think about what our culture is struggling with between genders today. Think of all the fractions, all the abuse that's taken place. What if the church stood up and said, you know what, we have another way. Our Jesus took on the culture and said, no more. No more. We are to be be treated the same, men and women alike. I'm going to call men and women to lead my church. Part of my role is helping to plant new churches. And I went to a dear sister, uh, Reese Skye, who planted a church as co-lead with her husband. She's the preacher, he's the administrator. And I said, Reese, what do I have to do to find more women who will plant churches? Because I believe if we plant churches with women leaders, they'll be more apt to be um, effective. They'll be more apt to draw women who no longer feel like they have a place in the church. And she said, without even blinking, she said, you need to start in junior high. Maybe even earlier. You need to start when girls are young, before, before people tell them what they can and can't do. Wouldn't that be amazing, Grace? Wouldn't that be amazing if we became the kind of community where young boys and young girls both saw people of their gender up front, leading, teaching, preaching, wouldn't it be great if, if, if little girls and little boys believed with all their heart that they had a place in the church? That if God called them to leadership, they would be able to do that. If God gifted them to preach, they would be able to do that. What if we became that church? What if we became the church that Paul called us to 2,000 years ago? That Jesus paved the way for when he turned the tables on culture and said, no more. No more. We are one in Christ. Holy God, we're so grateful for your word that uh, we don't have to try to fix things with our fancy opinions and what we think we know. We can simply go to your love letter to us. We can go to your word. God, I pray for everyone in this room who has influence over young men and women. And I pray, God, that we would, in some small way, be able to affirm children, young people, who are the future of the church. God, may may we never take away what you intend for them. May we fan it to flame. When we see giftedness, may we call it out. When we see leadership, whether it be a little girl or a little boy, may we acknowledge that and affirm it. God, in some way, help us to influence the culture that we live in to help them see the Jesus way. I pray all these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.